Good, we have half an hour for questions. And perhaps to say we may not always answer them, but we'll endeavor to respond. And we're recording this, so I don't think your questions will be picked up by the mic. We'll endeavor to repeat them in order to put them mm. in a way that's not identifying you as the asker of the question um, into the recording. But we might forget, so uh, bear with us. Shall we start with the notes? Yeah, you, we, we got a couple of written ones, or maybe there was a couple you got there, did you? Can you please explain the purpose and significance of bowing to the Buddha upon entry and exit of the hall? I can only tell you what I do. <laughs> the, this is a gesture of acknowledgement. Uh, I have received teachings and practiced in a tradition handed down freely by generations of people, uh, purported, purportedly going back to a historical figure named Siddhartha Gautama. We're not quite sure when he lived. Uh, we thought we did know, but uh, the specialists now only agree that what they previously thought they did know doesn't stand. Yeah. But it'll be uh, roughly the year 400 before Christ when he died. And since then, there is a transmission of teachings that have been felt existentially useful, transformative, inspiring. Uh, I personally think they're amongst the most civilizing influences in the history of human mankind. And I acknowledge this when I bow or pay my brief respects to the Buddha statue. That I have benefited from this and that I want to dedicate my life's energy to handing what uh, little I have understood of this on. And yeah, it's good since we do the talking, most of the talking up front here, it is important for me that you see that I refer back to something. I am not the last instance of wisdom here. Just because I happen to have a microphone doesn't mean I know it all. And it's important for me, it makes it more easy for me to do, uh, to open my mouth if I see you, that, that you see that I acknowledge a lineage and a wisdom teaching. And that I trust your intelligence to um, make the distinction what, um, you know, what is wisdom and what is not. <laughs> and maybe I'd like to just make a response too because I think it's actually a really, really good question and for me it's actually bound together with even just saying when I do this that it comes from a tradition and similarly having received in a way in a different framework but in a very similar spirit as uh, Akinchino spoke of there having received and wanting to express gratitude and appreciation and so when I bow to the Buddha, or equally when at the end of a sitting I bring my hands together here and just, I want to take a moment to express my appreciation and gratitude for what is offered, which in the case of sitting here, it's your practice, your commitment. When I'm facing the Buddha, it's like, actually that guy, he did some really hard work in his practice as far as I can tell. It wasn't all easy for him. He just didn't sit down and went, whoa, I got it. you know. Um, and I have a lot of gratitude and respect for that. And it's not just, for me, that I bow when I bow 
to the Buddha to Siddhartha Gautama, who lived as we know approximately sometime way back then, but also what there's a sense for me of bowing down to what that represents, the potential for awakening in all human beings, and that that's something worthy of my appreciation, gratitude and respect. And so, so that's just a little piece from my side of it. But, uh, yeah. And I could pick up another question. We'll give you some time for once you ask as well, of course. Could we have some guidance as to what's okay to do during free period after lunch? <laughs> so, I uh, didn't repeat the first question, that was probably clear. What to do after lunch? Um, well, it's kind of free in an interesting way, isn't it? I mean, some people have their work period then, and there's quite a few places in the day where rather than calling it free, as if the other time is unfree, which is an <laughs> interesting... I mean, I see where the language comes from. But it's like some of it is structured, and some of it is unstructured, which we could call free. And uh, essentially, do much the same as you're doing in the structured time during the unstructured time, and you'll get the most value out of your retreat here. So what that means is keep it simple, don't get busy with doing too many things, but if you want to do something like go for a walk, or to sit in a comfortable chair, or have a cup of tea at lunchtime you might need, or want to rest and nap, it's fine, wonderful, please do that. But don't sort of, don't get busy with too many things. Don't set out on an expedition to the uh, highest point of the local hills. I wouldn't suggest that as the best thing, because uh, you probably won't get there in time, and it'll be frustrating. At least that's what happened to me when I tried. Um, um, and don't get too busy with trying to organize or organize or sort of figure out things. Just keep the space as simple and open as you can and use it as an opportunity to connect and be present with whatever simple and wholesome activities you might feel moved to engage in, whether a hot drink, a walk, a rest, or, gosh, sometimes people I've heard on occasion do sitting, walking or standing meditation at lunchtime. We'll say a bit more about that as we get a few days into the retreat. But that's probably enough for now. Unless there's anything else. Sound advice. Yeah. Uh, just look what's happening to your mind when you move from structured to unstructured. Mm. You know, rambu- <laughs> sudden influx of rambunctious energies, uh, confusion at not being told what to do with five free minutes. You know, whatever your response to this is, be interested in it. Mm. It's going to be revealing some way. I have another one here. It says, I wonder if you could speak about renunciation, especially renouncing contact with intimate partners back at home during retreat. <laughs> Curious to hear ideas for how to work with hmm, something intimate relations retreats and retreat. Thank you. Metta. Well, I think the first is re- reassure them that you come back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, try to explain why you wish to not hold, you know, verbal contact during a few days. You may sell it uh, in a way that you say uh, you you'll be more available upon return. (laughs) 
if you're allowed to do this, because this is something you may need to do for yourself right now, but you're not just doing this for yourself, because uh, anybody who is in an intimate relationship with you is going to be at the receiving end of all the unenlightened bits of you. So, if you're going to cultivate wholesome qualities of mind, they will also be at the receiving end of these wholesome qualities. Try to explain. Obviously, some partners feel not in the same way inspired as you may feel by these teachings, or they may not have an understanding of the necessity you sense for coming on the retreat, and it needs uh, meet meet your partners, uh, preferably before the retreat, and try to explain that it's an intrinsic part of that retreat that you do not receive emails and you do not respond to SMS and you're not on the phone with them. Yeah. That this is not a statement against your relationship or that you're pondering leaving them or something like that. Reassure them. Uh, acknowledge that this is important and try to explain how it works. That would be my suggestion. I'm struck, uh, just uh, you're receiving the question, we were speaking a little earlier how, and Akenshana and I, how fortunate it was that for me, uh, Catherine came along to the street and uh, Akenshana's partner, who at one point been planning to come along, uh, wasn't able to. And so uh, <laughs> it's interesting, we, we too know these dynamics. Um, the other piece I'd just like to sh- offer briefly to that question in the broader sense of intimate relationship, both for one's own understanding of it, that when we say put that down it is in no way a message to you equally as to your partner of not valuing what that might represent and what that might be it's really important that there's no message given to ourselves that somehow we say this is less value and actually just that sense of intimate relationship actually it seems one of the fundamental intimate relationships that we are called upon and really need to develop is that intimate relationship with our inner being, our inner experience, what we might call ourself. And um, sometimes having the space to do that is really the basis from which then we can enter into an authentic intimate relationship with others. And that's not just the others who we call our intimate partners, but an authentic intimate relationship with people who we would wish to be close with. That may or may not be those we choose or call our intimate partners and uh, I think the lessons of those inner relationships translate very clearly and directly into outer relationships so in a certain way we're working with the territory while we're here good, floor is open Mm. we'll run out of questions Please speak. I'm just wondering if there's anything special about the breath as an object of attention. Um, I found in the last retreat I said that the breath was feeling sort of chaotic and not like a place that I wanted to rest, and so I spent more time just being in the hands. Um, and just wondering if you thought about that. <clears throat> yeah. There is something fairly uh, peculiar about breathing. It has um, 
both, you know, in terms of bodily function, it's unique. I know of no other body process that can be completely su subject to voluntary attention. You can manipulate your breath, shorten it, lengthen it, hold it, hyperventilate, or you can completely forget it and it continues. So it can be run by either of our nervous systems. There is no other body function I'm aware of that can do that. Then every big, every big tradition has understood that the breath is something with which you connect the mind and the body. Now, the Greeks with their pneuma, the Latins with their spiritus, the Chinese with, with the uh, you know, qi energy, and the, the obviously the Indians with their prana. So there is an acknowledgement that the breath is the messenger between body and mind. If you want to modulate the mind's states, the breath is an easy entryway because that mind starts to take the flavor of the object of attention. So if you place your attention on something as rhythmical and as soothing as the breath, then just attending to the soothing breath is going to soothe your mind states. And the breath is dynamic. So there's a slightly pronounced aspect of, of it in breathing. Most people feel that the in-breath has a certain degree of freshness and a part of the out-breath is most tangible. So there's a slight increase in intensity and a decrease in intensity. In other words, it means if you want to stay continually aware of breathing sensations, you, are, you have to follow the decrease of intensity with an increase of attention. Yeah? So that little nudge strengthens your attentional focus. Then the breath is always with you. you know, as long as you're alive, you're breathing. It um, still doesn't cost anything. And it tells you a lot about how you are in the world. You know, if you're angry, you have a particular breath. If you're sad, you have a particular breath. If you're elated, you have a particular breath. All these qualities of mind you can meet when you meet the breath. And it's profoundly symbolic as well. You know, you don't get the perfect in-breath that sort of shortly after three o'clock Kinjino did his perfect in-breath. Doesn't make sense. You keep, however good your in-breathing is, you keep breathing out. It's something you keep repeating. And in many ways, it, it resembles much of our life's experiences is we have to welcome it and we have to let it go. We have to re take it in and we have to let it go, let it go its way. Yeah? So we have to continually adapt, be permeable. And in cultivating attention to that experience of breathing, we learn the big two movements of welcoming, accepting and releasing and letting go. Then the breath is, um, tells us, you know, you have the three hallmarks right there. The coming and going tells us of impermanence. The dependency we experience on breathing tells us of, um, you know, that we, of conditionality. The, the pain aspect or the, the um, contingency aspect is right there, that we depend on each breath, you know, average 15 times a minute. And finally, you know, the breath is profoundly impersonal. It's not my breath. You know, you guys have been breathing that breath already. 
good chance even my worst enemies are breathing the same air. Yeah? So it's a profoundly elemental quality that makes my breathing possible and makes my life possible. And I have a, a message of impersonality right there in the gas exchange that my body engages in in breathing. So in many ways, that's probably why Buddhist traditions have felt that the breathing is particularly uh, useful both for the stilling of mind and also the developing of insight. Uh, it's rated as the prime tool to still the thinking mind. That's what the old text referred to. I'm sure Jana has some things to say. Yeah, I'll just add a couple of bits briefly. Uh. Just to repeat the question um, for the for the recording, the, the question, as I remember, was: uh, Is the breath special? And recording the experience of sometimes the breath being kind of having a kind of a turbulent or unsettling effect, and connecting with it, and therefore choosing a different object for a period of time. And the hands you mentioned. So, I think as a response to what's going on when you pay attention to the breath, sometimes that can be a very useful and appropriate response. I think it's always useful just to check, am I moving away from breath because I don't want to be agitated or unsettled? But just as Akinjano said, if the breath is soothing, it soothes the mind, but if something associated with the territory in the body through which the breath is passing and it moves through all the emotional, the primary emotional territory is agitated, sometimes actually the breathing or attending to the breathing can have an agitating effect. And while it's useful to practice with that, it's also a fine option to say, that's not what's most useful right now. And one could choose to use the hands, as you said, or the kind of what we're more suggesting here is the felt sense of the whole body. So if there's agitation in a particular location with the breath, we may work a bit with that, seeing if we can soften, relax, open, or we might find it useful to say, okay, I'll just kind of open the focus a little bit. I won't point my attention too much in that direction, but let there be a larger field of body in which the breath is happening and maybe give more attention to the sense of contact with the earth. And, and although I totally go for everything about the breath and I'm an absolute enthusiast for it, it's also interesting just in the context of the conversation, one of, I guess, my Dharma ancestors, a teacher of one of my teachers, Buddhadasa, um, no, sorry, not but Dhammadaro in Thailand, he would teach his students to practice paying attention, holding their hand like this, or like this, I don't know if you, I'll put it up here so you can see, and feeling the sensation in the palm as they did this. And it's sort of four or six steps coming to vertical and then going back. Now, we're not teaching this practice, I'm not suggesting you need to do it, but it's interesting, because that's what he used to train them in, both calm, samatha, and insight, vipassana. And uh, my teacher said it's because he didn't trust they'd do the practice. And um, if he left him, but this way he could see. <laughs> the moment you, your mind stops paying attention, your hand stops moving, the teacher goes, Oi, <laughs> we're not doing that here. But it's interesting that you brought your attention to your hands in that context. It, it has been used, shall we say, as a place to practice with.
I think it's highly likely that we will speak about them in a range of different ways with or without those specific reference tags of uh, hindrances or defilements. I tend to use different language than that, but uh, I'm not sure if you're asking me to speak about them now um, or just wondering if we'll speak about them along the way because we probably will. Okay. I think then the answer would be yes. Okay. Yes, please. Come and talk to one of us. Yeah, uh, it's too it's too broad spectrum. Yeah, to if you're in need of support, we'll find ways to support you. Yeah, if we think this is just a meditational obstacle, we'll probably tell you. Yeah, but it may need a little more precision and a little more detail. Seems too too broad for me to respond to. Don't hesitate to write us a note and we'll sit down and or we speak with some of the retreat support folks and take in there's help possible. Mm. Yeah? Mm. So maybe I'm I'd, what I'd say with it is just uh, equally as that, just as a brief response in case that's not what happens. Um, just listen to yourself and see what feels useful, see what feels possible. Don't hold an idea of how it should feel or look against how it actually is. It's true that when our health isn't good, in any way that our health might not be good, that presents its own challenges in meditation, but it also presents opportunities. So sort of not 100% health-wise doesn't mean less than 100% practice-wise. It just means it might look or feel a little different, and that's okay. And then more specifics here we could speak with you about. Yeah, we think what we do is kind of is all is all weather practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please. So you mean when you get up and leave the hall or queue up for a cup of tea or well the choices are there are many choices obviously yeah where you what you can do is you look what impinges most strongly that's an, an always an interesting question what experience impinges right now in my senses most strongly just acknowledge the impact yeah and then you acknowledge 
your response to that impact. Sensory intensity usually has a call for our involuntary attention. Anything loud, anything sudden, anything un unanticipated is going to be responded by us with what's happening. And then upon that immediate involuntary attentional shift, there's usually very quickly something say, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Or something that says, oh, God, why can't she? Yeah. So you acknowledge the, the seriality of this, you see. Impingement, response. So you take ownership of what's happening in you. That would be a wonderful thing in transition. So you kind of, somebody rings a bell and you notice, do I like this bell ring? So thank God, you know, my kneecap is saved. Or, oh, yeah, a shame. I was just really getting at it. And then you get out and you notice a shift in your light and you say, you, you look what that does to your system. Does it register? Is something inside changing? Do you enjoy what you're doing? Are you looking forward? Are you dreading things? Yeah? You look at what's going on in your mind. You try to familiarize yourself with the place from which you meditate. Preferably always in reference to something bodily. What does the body feel? What does parts of your body feel? What do parts of your body feel? Am I clear? Hmm. Yeah. So again, I'll just uh, put the question on the recorder about continuity and transition and how to manage that effectively or to maximize or deepen continuity. So the only piece I want to add, that sense of, you know, the body is the, as Akinshita was saying, the body is the basis of the continuity, so far as it's always there in whatever you're doing. And it's a primary reference point. Um, you can always come to that. But I'd also just invite you to question a little bit how you're holding the word continuity. It's an interesting word. We actually encourage and support it and suggest it even. And yet, of course, the mind is not continuous. The mind is arising again and again, sometimes with remarkable and sometimes with alarming rapidity. Um, it's always remarkable, only sometimes is it alarming. But um, with that, so sometimes the very idea of continuity starts to create a kind of pressure. And actually what's really useful, I find, is to have the sense of seeing what's actually possible, how much, how fully, how ongoingly I can be present, and at the same time, I'm going to keep having to begin again. Even if it's apparently continuous, the reality of what's happening is it's beginning again and again and again and again in the chosen topic of observation or attention, which is being here in my body, mm. as opposed to arising with a thought going that way or a, oops, I've got to do that now, which is also a kind of continuity, just not the one we're after. Something arising is the continuity. And so in that sense, the emphasis is much more on the beginning again rather than that, did I manage to continue it? I find that a more useful orientation. Even though the language is helpful, it can also sometimes generate a kind of a striving, I find. Yes, yeah, sometimes people hear continuity, not continuity, they hear control. Hmm. Um, when they hear continuity, so got to stay at it, got to stay on top of it, got to keep it. Yeah? So, and it, take, it may take some time to actually find out that it says continuity, but what it does is trying to somehow control it. 
Yeah. That's not what we mean. Mm. We mean receiving rather than goading. Yeah. Yeah. So probably we have time for one more or two of the questions or we were able to be very brief, which is unlikely, but at least on our part. But. So did people hear the question about uh, in walking meditation, is it useful or do we recommend to pause at the end of each length before or after we turn or to actually continuously flow through the transition and direction? Um, I don't know that I or that we particularly will recommend either of those. I've practiced in both ways at different times. It's interesting to notice how we kind of want to know the way to do it. Yeah, as if there's a way and if they tell me the way then I'll be able to do it. Um, and we all do this, I do this. Um, what's more useful in this context is to look and see what happens if I do it this way and what happens if I do it that way. There's something really useful about that just unbroken flow of making the stopping, turning and returning or coming back in the other direction a single unbroken process of movement after movement after movement. That can be sometimes really useful and equally sometimes it can be really useful to, to really check the momentum, to pause and stop. And that particularly gives a reference for whether the mind has got out of sync with the body, as the Kinchino mentioned this morning. So initially I'd suggest try pausing, either at the end of the length or before you begin the next one. See what happens for you. If you'd like to try just continuing, see what happens for you. See what's useful. There isn't a right way there. But the fact that you're being interested in asking the question is great. Should we do one more? If there is one. Yes, please. Well, continuity is one aspect of it. In, skillful intervention is another aspect of it. You know, we, we have, uh, there is a task here. It's not just about being continually engaged with whatever we are doing. We're, we're actually favoring <coughs> particular types of engagement. Uh, engaging <coughs> attentional focus with somatic awareness is the definite topic for today. 
So if you find that your mind is engaged not with somatic awareness, but with pondering what kind of tea you would get later on, then this is not particularly somatic. This is uh, a desire-driven imagination, yeah? anticipating a sensory experience that is likely to occur anyway without you fantasizing lots about it. Yeah? So, uh, definite suggestion, yes. Gently, kindly, but persistently return the focus of your attention to a somatic anchor connected with your breathing, with your posture. And do that as often as is necessary. Expect that if you do that you do that hundreds of times. Hmm. That is, uh, the, you know, attention is wandering. That's what it is supposed to do. Evolution, there is an evolutionary bias for this to happen. Uh, nobody can just attend to the breath and stay there for the rest of the hour. Much of the practice is noticing that the mind disappears to something else and then intervening gently but persistently and returning the attentional focus to the chosen task. Yeah. I have not repeated the question. Um, I can do that, if yeah. you, or you can. If I was. Let me see. There was a question about continuity that y you have noticed that there is a subtle pressure when asked to be continually aware that you experience a subtle pressure. Uh, uh, you felt that the explanation was useful and you also added the question, if you noticed that the mind is moving on to another project than the, the felt quality of the present experience, uh, whether it would be skillful not just to continually stay aware with the fantasy of tea, but actually come come back to the original task. Hmm. Yeah. Do I do justice to your question? Good. Yeah, so just again, uh, a little piece to maybe add, and it's kind of icing on the cake, or maybe it's not even icing. Um, <laughs> um, but two things just with that. We're giving a certain orientation at this point in the retreat because of where most of us are going to be, which is actually in the process of settling and landing. Later on in the retreat, we'll talk more and give more direction and support for when we're more established in being present and aware and inhabiting our bodies consciously to actually be able to see what happens in those processes more clearly in order to understand them with insight rather than to be carried away by them. So that, that is part of the trajectory of the practice, but it's collectively not where most of us are probably at. And individually, that could be different for someone amongst us, that that might be fine. If one's getting lost in that outward moving thought towards tea and whatever, that is a sign that probably it's useful to just keep it in the simple body, somatic experience and felt sense. As said. But the other thing I just want to name there, because it's again, this is common linguistic kind of traps or confusions that we easily pick up because the language is inevitably imprecise when we talk about coming back or bringing it back what do we mean because actually again we don't bring the mind back in terms of wake it up if it was lost it wakes itself up what we do is we notice that we're here having been thinking about tea until that happens we've got nothing to do the mind is just turning 
once that happens, actually to recognize, oh, I'm actually present again, or the mind is again conscious and awake here in the knowing of the thinking about the tea, and then I can choose to direct it back to the body. But that's a little different than the sense of trying to somehow bring the mind back to the body. The mind's already back, or else we wouldn't even know that we'd been lost. And I find that kind of actually something to celebrate. We can think, oh, lost again. Or we can say, wow, the light came back on. I don't know how it did that, but it did. And we don't do it, but it happens in... It's supported to happen by our intention to be awake. That's clear. But the intention itself doesn't guarantee that that will be the continuous happening. So that, that, that sense of what is to bring it back, it's not that we're pulling away from something, but we're actually redirecting what's already here, which is the wakefulness that's re-arising again. It's uh, kind of good news that wakefulness re-arises, uh, because certainly... A sleepiness seems to re-arise too. Hmm. Good. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Time for walking. We'll meet back in here at quarter to four. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.